Hey, y'all. This is Luke Gibbons with the UNC Asheville Office of Multicultural Affairs. Over the past two years or so, OMA students have been involved in recording and distributing a podcast called $40 in Paris. $40 in Paris is the office's attempt to create a virtual community and build on collective knowledge by talking about topics and concepts that have been important to UNC Asheville students at the time. We spent the vast majority of those few years recording and distributing this to a small group of students, faculty, and staff close to our office. But now we've decided to broaden our audience a little and to distribute this a little more widely to the public. So over the course of the next few weeks or months, just depending on how busy we get, we'll be posting select episodes from our time together recording. You're going to notice that the nature of the conversation and even the format is going to change from time to time. Some episodes will have intro music, some won't. Some won't have any music at all. Some will have different music, some will have a different cast of characters talking. The style, the format, and who's involved changes depending on the students who are involved in recording at the time and their interest. So, at any rate, we'd like to thank you for joining us and welcome you to $40 in Paris. Hey. So this episode was one of the first ones we ever recorded. It was recorded back in February of 2018, and it features Alondra, Laura, and myself talking about Ursula K. Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelis. Enjoy. What's going on, everybody? This is Luke. Alondra. And Laura. And you're listening to $40 in Paris. Let me start off by saying we're sorry. Um... We're sorry to make you wait so long. <laughs> um, we know you've missed us. I know, I know. And it's, you will not believe what we've had to go through the past yeah. few weeks trying to record a podcast. A lot of missteps and mishaps <laughs> and series of unfortunate events. Yep. Um, yeah, we had uh, some of our audio be cut incredibly short. Um, yeah. Yeah, we had two interviews that we basically ended up having to scrap. Um, and they were really good interviews, Great too. Great conversations, lost yep. to the void. But yeah, so I sent a I sent an article out to you all, I guess it was like a few weeks ago, um, and it was called The Ones Who Walked From Omelis. Yeah, The Ones Who Walked Away From Omelis. Yes. Do y'all know what that means? No. Omelis is Salem O. Yeah. Salem, Oregon, yeah. spelled backwards. Oh. Putting it together. <laughs> what? Connecting the yeah. dots. Um, so, uh, for those of you who don't know, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelis is a short story written by Ursula Le Guin. Uh, Ursula Le Guin actually uh, lived in Portland, Oregon. Um, and so, this was kind of like a, a nod to you know, her adopted home. But it was a really interesting uh, short story, and I wanted to send it to you. I sent it to everybody on the this OMA staff team, mm-hmm. just because that's what we do. We send articles to each other. We have like conversations about them, and I wanted to ask, like, what did y'all, what did y'all think? Well, when I first started reading it, I was like, great, I'm being sucked into another stuffy old parable. It's mm. so descriptive. <laughs> that was the hardest part for me, getting just getting through like the um, descriptive part of it is easy to um tune out <laughs> it is and that was one of the things like you know my apologies because i did want to warn y'all about <laughs> that like the first and for all of you who who choose to actually like google this and read it because you can find it online the first like page is so incredibly like descriptive yeah. and not always in the best way so it can be it's like carmack mccormick like it's really hard to drudge through you know carmack will 
spend like an entire page talking about like the landscape like mm-hmm. the desert mm-hmm. landscape can't do it and then in like in one paragraph it'll be like this incredible like violence so anyway <laughs> but i wanted to warn y'all about that but anyway no what did y'all what did y'all think well are we allowed to do spoilers let's talk about it and then we'll do spoilers. Okay. Talk and then what about that'll do, yeah, we'll talk about it first and then we'll do spoilers. And then what that does is for folks who are like, oh, I actually want to read this, press pause and then you can go <laughs> yeah. read it and then you can come <laughs> yeah, it's back. It's not long at all. No, it's, it's not. Okay, like, we can do what, spoiler seven alert. Pages. Yeah. Yeah. All right. yeah. Spoiler alert. Yes. How long did it take y'all to read it? Uh, well, me because of the descriptive <laughs> thing that I had to keep rereading. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mm-hmm. About 10 minutes for me. Yeah. Although I did go back and reread parts of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's the after afterthoughts that you actually um, start looking into it and rereading stuff. Yeah. I found the first part to be seemingly oversimplified, even kind of like sugary sweet. And I Mm. was like, I'm not going to enjoy the story. What I did find interesting was that you often people are fascinated by the idea of dystopia. So you have all these dystopia novels like 1984 and Brave New World. Mm -hmm. And I I personally love dystopia novels. Yes. And so for someone to set up a utopia Mm -hmm. was outside of the normal, normally what I read and what people write. So I found that to be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely thought, um, the perspective that they took on it this wonderful world wonderful place i thought that was really nice because they also talked about how you can project your own imagine like yeah. imagination um and like what you viewed as like the perfect place yeah so i thought that was really cool and it's so funny like in uh in ursula Le Guin's writing it's almost like she had to every few sentences like you know like are you with me like you know like you know but it's whatever you (laughs) want yeah and so like kind of almost checking in with the reader to see if they're still engaged and almost kind of this breaking of the the fourth wall of of going uh i'm trying to think of how she put it but you know like you said it's it's like whatever you whatever you want like Mm -hmm. however i'm describing this is you know my idea of perfection but think about your idea of perfection yeah yeah it seemed like an allegory like I was supposed to be reading in between the lines like it wasn't just a story it was something to derive special meaning from sort of like a commentary on society gotcha so now this is where I think we can go spoiler alert you knew, all right. like you knew that that okay this is great and all but she's setting you up for something yeah you definitely could feel it yeah and so like talk talk more about that all right so from here on out spoiler alert yeah. when the, Spo- when the beat drops <laughs> yeah this is the beat drops <laughs> So it goes from this sort of oversimplified, very sunshiny um, setup to something a lot more disturbing. And so when talking about the sunshiny setup, right, um, it is this uh, utopian society and they're talking about uh, a summer festival Mm -hmm. that they're having. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's uh, there's small children that are out playing. It's sunshiny. It's beautiful. I believe it's uh, the city. Omelis is on the water somewhere. It's like flanked by mountains. Um, it's describing it again as this very beautiful place. They're prepping for the celebration. She talks about like people riding these horses, um, but also saying that yeah, it's a summer celebration, but this is every day in Omolus. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But then she's like, this is not just some puritanical place. There's drugs. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, there's bad stuff. Uh, what do they call it? Druze, I believe. The drug um, in the city of Omolus. I believe mm. it's called Druze. And it's a drug that you get this amazing feeling of euphoria, which will then transition into these hallucinations, but not just any like hallucinations, but hallucinations that enlighten you to the secrets of the universe. Mm -hmm. So 
My thought was, who wouldn't want to try that? <laughs> but then she goes on to add, the citizens here don't even need it. Yeah. Yeah. They don't yeah. need this escape from reality. Gotcha. Yeah. But then, again, the beat drops. There's yep. a price mm-hmm. to be paid for this this happiness, as there always is. Yes. Well, there's a child. And we find out that there is a small child. <laughs> it sits in a basement in the dark all day in its own excrement. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's terrible living conditions. Severely neglected and yeah. undernourished. Yeah. And the thing is, everyone knows about it. Or when, once they're old enough to know, yeah. they're personally taken down there and witnessing this child living in, in filth, and seeing how it's treated or they are treated. It's interesting. Everyone knows about it, and then they kind of they're shocked at first, but then they realize, okay, well, if this is if this is what it takes, they like for the rest of us to be happy. Um, they kind of accept that, and. Um, they go on living with it. Well, there's a universal law that if they took the child out of there mm-hmm. and started caring for it, everything around them would disintegrate. Everything that they have, everything that they enjoy. So it comes down to a question of the suffering of the minority for the happiness of the majority. Yeah. So you yeah. have this one particular child and is essentially living in misery. Like it's neglected. It, it never sees anybody. It's rarely fed. When it is fed, it's not pleasant food that this child is eating no real human connection with anyone so even those those children right when they get old enough to go see this child the child who uh, is neglected only sees their eyes the snickering but never actually has a relationship but what even makes that worse is if you read it the child wasn't always like that like the child had a mother the child actually had a life um, previous to being locked in this place but now you know it's been so many years ago that as time goes on it loses that connection mm-hmm. to like that sense of humanity but then as you say everyone knows it everyone gets to see it at a certain point and then there's this decision that has to be made almost kind of like this internal decision which is like what do we do like do we continue to allow this child to live in this uh miserable condition for our own benefit or do we sacrifice what we have in order to help this child to do what some people may consider is the right thing yeah morally right morally right because you you definitely hear in those stories that are in the story that people feel incredibly conflicted yeah and so you know like there's that feeling like yes they have morals or Mm -hmm. there's a certain level there because they feel a certain way about it you know they're shocked at first but um eventually they 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 have to come to terms with it most of them do except for the ones that walk away yeah and we'll get to that (laughs) but but i think it's um i think it's important to even think about those people who 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 stay the vast majority of the citizenry of Omelas, like they stay some people they put it in back of their head mm-hmm. they don't think about it anymore some people understand that their sense of enjoyment and satisfaction is at the expense of that and so to dig deeper what i mean by that is they are able to enjoy life as much as they're able to enjoy it because they understand uh the price yeah well not even the price they understand what misery is it's kind of like saying like how do you know what happiness is if you don't know what sadness is how can you understand light unless there's dark which juxtaposes that yeah them being able to understand what it is to live in this utopian society and understand complete bliss is because in the forefront of their mind they have an understanding of what despair is and 
they're okay with that. Well, at first I was like, this is a terrible scenario. And I was, I was like in this fictional world, this is really hard to think about. And then I was like, wait a second, don't we already live like this? Mm-hmm. Everything mm-hmm. we have, everything we own. Is at the expense of other people? Yeah, our clothes, some of our clothes, well, it depends on where you buy your clothes, but <laughs> where there's a chance it was made in a sweatshop somewhere yeah. in, a, in a different country. Um, same thing when it comes to our food. Um, there's this whole issue of food not being raised sustainably or humanely, mm-hmm. which you know you can see at uh, large scale production and small scale production, um, and that's why a lot of people choose to go vegetarian. But the suffering is still there, and we yeah. we know about it. Mm-hmm. We're very aware of it. At least most of us are. So I think, in a way, we're already living this allegory. I remember we. Um, I don't. I don't think you went to it, but. Um the talk with ah, yeah the talk with Nicole, Hannah, Nicole Jones. Hannah Jones yeah she did a lecture or I guess you would call it, a presentation here at, um, in Lipinski and she was talking about how who if it's not your own I guess children in mm-hmm. her in her um, presentation who then whose whose children do we sacrifice you know I thought it related back a lot to this story. Like, as soon as I heard her say that, I, I immediately thought of this, and I was like, oh, that, that's kind of... Or, like, when I read this, I thought of that. For those who don't know, so Nicole Hannah-Jones is a New York Times uh, writer, and her research almost exclusively is on s- school segregation. And so mm-hmm. she was here a few weeks ago at Lipinski, and she was talking about school segregation. I thought what was great about her talk was, although she was talking about the national landscape of school segregation Um, she also was talking about like the specifics of our area for those who people Mm -hmm. who don't know north carolina has been very involved in like the school segregation fight Uh, she did a great job of talking about locally what was happening what she also talked about was specifically Asheville and how Asheville for as progressive as it is yeah. <laughs> has Asheville High School has the most <laughs> it has the largest achievement gap in the entire state so if you look at uh, white students versus their counterparts there's a larger gap between them than any other place in the state but this is supposed to be nice kind of you know liberal Asheville mm-hmm. but you know one of the things that she does say is this decision that people have to make of like whose kid do we sacrifice and no one wants to sacrifice their own kid right and her her own decision um to to about where she was going to send her daughter to school she chose to send her to a segregated um elementary yeah it was an elementary school so she lives in new york in brooklyn and New York is the most segregated school system in the country. A lot of that is because there's no busing. It's by geographic location, right? I say segregation. It's not something that's done necessarily on purpose in quotation marks. It's just like demographically who lives where, then who ends up going to the school in that region. Yeah. Because when you mm-hmm. say segregated, I think of something <laughs> We're not that's like... About you know, laws have passed. Yeah. Yeah. So that's more, that is definitely like legal segregation, which Mm -hmm. you, you can't, you can't legally uh, segregate. But what she also does is she does a great job of talking about the history of it. And so you have Brown versus board of education. I'll get like very brief 50,000 foot overview and I'll skip a lot of details. (laughs) Um, A lot of important details. But you have Brown versus board of education in which the Supreme court says, you can't segregate schools. Um, there is no such thing as separate but equal. Though they say this, it takes a very long time for that process to actually happen in schools. 
really until the 70s, right? When you start seeing schools be a lot more integrated. And there's intentional steps that school districts had to take in order to integrate those those schools. Some of that is developing magnets. Some of that is actually busing uh, students to different types of schools. And what she does is she says that if you look throughout the late 70s when uh, desegregation is actually really happening in places and you go to about 1988 in 1988 the achievement gap is about as close as it's going to get so you actually have schools that are fairly integrated at this point but then what you start seeing is these kind of retroactive uh, things that are happening so though legally a school can't segregate you start seeing white flight you start seeing folks take their kids out of these schools and put them into charter schools, put them into private schools. You start seeing a lot more uh, students going to quote-unquote neighborhood schools. They're not being bused into different places. And so the makeup is a reflection of the neighborhoods. And because we know that our neighborhoods aren't that integrated, the schools themselves aren't that integrated, then you had legal challenges to busing. And so if you look we are more segregated in our schools than we were back in 1988 and even going into the 70s. It's not legal segregation, but because many of these school systems have not continued to proactively integrate uh, schools and their policies, and because of what Alondra was talking about, no one wants to sacrifice their child, we keep getting further and further apart. So not only are we segregated, but that achievement gap is much larger. So it sounds like the solution, I mean, nothing is simple, but might be relatively simple. If we started busing kids to different schools, that could lend itself to integration. That could, but then, <laughs> then think about uh, think about Asheville High. How many schools are in Asheville? High schools. Do you have any idea, Alondra? I have no idea. <laughs> I'll guess. Well, like three? Let's just say. People can Google it. You don't have to think very hard. <laughs> but what I, but what, what you will see in Asheville High is you'll see tracking. So what that means is for students of color, they are on one track. For their white counterparts, they may be on uh, a very different track. Yes. And so the students of color are in, many of them are in regular classes. Um, not all, but a lot of white students are in a or i can't say ib because i don't know if there's an ib program but they're in honors, honors classes they're ap, AP yeah. classes right so what's happening is at an actual school level and i've seen this i've witnessed this from personal experience you have certain students that are being encouraged to take certain classes and other students that are not like yeah. i can again i can tell you from personal experience I went to uh, one high school for two years and I transferred to another high school. Um, I was in an international baccalaureate program my first two years of high school. So I transferred to my neighborhood school. I literally had teachers try to talk me out of AP classes. First, we're talking about first day, like not even first Mm -hmm. day. You know how like before school starts, you go and you meet your teachers. Yeah. Yeah. I had teachers (laughs) in my AP classes who attempted to talk me out of taking those AP classes. That's bizarre. (laughs) Literally, they just meet me. And they're like, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) This might be a little tough for you. And I'm thinking to myself, like, do you know what school I came from? The school I went to was like one of the top 100 schools in the country at that time. And 
you're telling me that I shouldn't be taking. And I was in an international baccalaureate program and they were saying that I should not be in their AP class. So I'm saying that to say, I know from personal experience that those types of things are happening. So what you even, I'm sorry. No. Uh, even from like where I'm from, I'm from uh, like Eastern North Carolina. Uh, there was definitely, and I went to a small little public high school um, in Princeton and not, not um, New Jersey, <laughs> not that prestigious. <laughs> not that yeah. Not that one. <laughs> Everyone always asks. Um, but no, uh, like even in my, um, we, we didn't offer many AP classes, but the ones that we did, I definitely, um, I took like an AP calculus class. One, there were already, what, five people, five whole people in my AP calculus wow. class. <laughs> one of them dropped it. <laughs> so then there were four people. <laughs> I can do math. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I was the only, I was the only, um, POC in that in that little group and already in Princeton there weren't there were not um it was it was a mostly white school um middle class white um kids that um well off yeah (laughs) um so and and like you could definitely tell you could see where the line was drawn where like I would go I I was in mostly honors classes and um a cup and I took an AP class and most of the time I was pretty much the only Hispanic, only person of color in those classes, maybe one other, um, maybe a black student. Um, but for the most part, it was majority of the classrooms were white. And then you would see the, um, the other, I guess, normal level Mm -hmm. classes. And that's where you would see like the difference. And like, that's where all of the rest of the, um, POC and minorities went, um, and took those classes. And, And so it's definitely, um, a problem and I've there's uh, there's also the problem that there aren't many teachers that um, can identify with those students and so that discourages them even more even yeah. more so um, just not being able to see like themselves in a position where they can understand this material yeah I mean I had a similar experience I mean for my you know my high school career I was usually the only one there was only a handful of classes where there would be more than maybe five of us but most of my classes it was like one or maybe two of us in that in that class and then what's fascinating you know there's this book like you know why are all the why are all the black kids sitting together or why the, <laughs> like that's why <laughs> like because you know if you're if you spend your entire day at school yeah. in these mostly like white classes and you have counterparts um who look like you or who are from your neighborhood who are being tracked into these other classes, well, of course you're going to want to spend time with those folks that you don't get to see on an everyday basis. So it makes sense that, you know, you would, you know, you would all sit together because in your classes, you may not have the ability to, to be with people who look like you. Yeah. To tie that back to Asheville High, you have two schools operating in one building, essentially. That's you, bizarre. Yeah, you have this school that is for your traditional track or regular track. Then you have this kind of honors AP track. And it's it's geared to two different, uh, I won't even say two different types of students, but it's uh, it's very much a form of legal segregation. And so... I was not aware of this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, At it's, all. <laughs> I don't think it's something that is, like, readily noticeable. No. I think it's definitely in the background. Like, you don't, like, even as a student, you don't realize it until, like, after the fact and after, like, you hear. Like, I, while I was in, in my classes, mm-hmm. like, I didn't, I didn't even think about it. I was just like, you know, I, I know this stuff. I'm here because I deserve to be here. Yeah. Um, but then after the fact, you really start to look around you and notice, and, wow, hmm. 
this is this is different. <laughs> what I also think this really hits at is this difference between kind of legal racism, legal segregation, the difference between policy and practice. So to Laura's point, when I think of segregation, I think of, you know, you didn't say it, but like Jim Crow, you think of this mm -hmm. legal thing that is happening. We don't always think of practice and practice. That's the thing that's not written down. That's how we operate. Those are the things that we do that perpetuate those types of systems. But again, you're not going to find it written down anywhere. It's just what we do. So though we don't have legal segregation, instead, we make decisions about where folks will choose to send their kids to go to school, where they choose to live, and they justify that by whatever means. We will track certain students into certain types of classes because of how we believe they're going to do in those classes. So is that legal? You know, is that written down anywhere that when you see a student of color that you assume that they should go into this class as opposed to this class? No, it's not written down anywhere. It gets into the practice. What are the things that we're doing that perpetuate that? Going off of that, yes. one of my classes, I've been reading this amazing book called Between the World and Me by Coates. Yeah, Ta-Nehisi Coates. Yeah. Yes, and I have really enjoyed it. And he basically talked about the schools in the streets being arms of the same beast, mm. where if you slipped up in the streets, the gangs would take your body, because he talks a lot about violence on the body inflicted by racism. Mm -hmm. And then if you slipped in the schools, um, they would suspend you or expel you, send you back to the streets where yes. the gangs would take your body. Mm. And how it was kind of like, a holding pen where mm. he would have to sit through classes that were not applicable to him because he remembers sitting in a French class and thinking why am I here I'm a world away from France I'm never going to get the chance to go to France mm -hmm. and he just talked about about how it was kind of a holding pen until um, they had the chance to suspend you or expel you because you were black yeah <laughs> or you know until you're 16 and you can say eh, I don't want to go to school anymore like I'm done yeah, yeah. And, you know, I worked at a community college before I came here, and I can't tell you how many students I would work with who, you know, at 16, 17, they just go, yeah, I'm done with school. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, this isn't applicable to me. Or I'm behind. I'm not going to catch up. They would leave school float for a few years and then decide, I need to go back to school. And so they would come to community college. With a community college, you have to take placement exams. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah. You don't just, yeah. you know, you don't just come in and start taking. No, mm -hmm. it's open access, but you got to take placement exams in, in math and in reading and writing mm -hmm. so that we can figure out which classes you're supposed to take. Well, guess what happens when you spent three years not taking a math class? Yeah. You're you, not going to do You get burnt well. out very yeah. easily. My brother had to go through that. Or he was taking placement exams and he just, he he felt burnt out really quickly and he wasted a lot of a lot of time well yeah and yeah. so you have students who've taken like calculus who would test in the basic math because they hadn't mm -hmm. done calculus in two or three years <laughs> and then so now when we start talking about like how is this connected to a larger system you know if you test into basic math a math 20 or you know, math 60 in that case you're talking about a number of classes you have to take in order to get up to a college level math course those classes aren't free you got to pay money to take those classes you're taking out student loans to take those classes and so now when you look at it on the back end, if you're able to even persist to the point where you can transfer, you've already accumulated so much student debt by the time you even get to being able to transfer because you had to take 
two or three or four extra just math classes to get to the same point that someone does if they transition immediately out of high school. Well, one quote he had that really struck me was, um, race is the child of racism, not the other way around. So if people yeah. already have these established preconceptions of you and people already expect you to fail, it's really hard to break through that. Um, people are like, my teacher doesn't want me to take AP classes because she doesn't think I'm smart enough. Well, I'm not going to take AP classes because I'm not smart enough. And so they fill the shoes that are already waiting for them. Yeah, many, uh, some folks will call it stereotype threat. But to, to tie that back to the story, it's that idea of like, who do we sacrifice? We already kind of live in this society, utopian, no. But we do very much live in a society where all of us have certain privileges. And then we've got to ask like, you know, to what extent do those privileges come at the result of someone else's misery and despair? Right. What about the people who walk away from a loss? Ah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's the title of the story. Um, so she talks in the story about there being these folks who, at a certain point, they just leave. Sometimes, usually, it's in the middle of the night without any type of warning. There's not much conversation. These folks just just pack up. And they start walking and they start walking to the mountains and we don't know, like, we don't know where they go. They don't talk to us. Somehow they just know and they just take off walking and life just kind of goes on. And so it's it's the people who walk from homeless. Right. So what we're left to infer is that there's some people who just can never reconcile that. Right. And they choose to just not be a part of it, you know. What they go to be a part of, who's to say? But they just choose to not participate in this. So what did y'all think about that specifically, right, the way she ends it? Well, there's no other word for it, but kind of spooky because they're leaving. We don't know where they're going, but they seem to know where they're going. Mm. And you could draw that off to a lot of conclusions. You could, um, since we're looking at the stories in allegory, does it mean people who go off the grid and make a lives for them make a life for themselves away from society and therefore not partake in society at the same time that's kind of defeatist because those things over here still happen while mm. you're over here doing your own thing and there's those people who feel like no stay fight like you hear that often it's like that there's a responsibility uh if you see something that you don't like to actually stay and to try to change it what yeah. do you think about that right so these people who walk away they could be um they could be turning their faces more towards activism, and part of activism is having a goal, but it's part of it is also plunging into the future without knowing what kind of consequences you're going to have to deal with. So it could be another, it could be a reference to people who turn towards activism too. Mm. Yeah, I thought it was um, interesting because uh, she writes, um, at times one of the adolescent girls or boys who go to see the child does not go home to weep or rage, does not in fact go home at all. And so sometimes that happens with like men and women but I find it interesting that they don't um cry about it or they don't um just sit there and kind of like do nothing yeah. they, they they actually leave and um as children yeah so it's like well what what are they what are they feeling if they're not like crying it's not necessarily that they have no like remorse or no emotion yeah it's that uh, they they have something bigger in mind there's a decision that yeah. has to be made right yeah. and it's it's a tough decision, but it's like they're resolute in their mm -hmm. decision. Yeah, so I just think that's, I think that's really interesting, especially, again, in the context of, you know, how we talk about, like, activism and people's, like, responsibility and, like, what that looks like. I think they, um, they, they embody that. They don't, they don't cry about it. They don't just sit there and, like, 
do necessarily nothing. They actually, they're, they know their opinion on it. Mm-hmm. And so they go and they like do something about it. And in this case, I think them doing some, or like the, the kids who see this and they just can't do it. Them doing something about it is them leaving. Yeah. So it's almost like a form of protest. In yeah. A way. And understanding that it's not going to change anything. Yeah. And how do you think that applies to activism as we see it, like on campus and how that plays out? I think it makes you think about it, at least. I think that's the one thing that it does. It may not do something in the wide, um, in the whole view of it, but I think it definitely, um, your contribution makes makes other people think about it, or at least like acknowledge that you did something. Well, also what your contribution is, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So is your contribution the person who speaks up uh, voices that this is a bad thing and tries to actively disrupt that system or change that system or the person who walks away and we know why that person walked away so in Mm -hmm. this particular case they leave omelas this utopia people don't not know why they left yeah they know very clearly why those people are leaving like i said when you translate that to campus um, and looking at the ideas of like activism um, part of me saying that is to say we in many ways pay attention to who is speaking the loudest you know it's that saying like the the squeaky wheel gets the oil (laughs) right (laughs) we're paying attention to that but oftentimes there are these subtle small things that are being done that we are not paying attention to and if we if we kind of sit back and we think about it we know what's going on with those things. We may tell ourselves different narratives or different stories for why that's happening, but sometimes you can learn more from the people who are not speaking and are just acting in certain ways than you can from the people who are being very vocal. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe um, we don't know where they're going because it doesn't necessarily matter where, we're, where they're going. The emphasis, the statement is on the fact that they left. Yeah. It would make us feel good if we knew where they were going. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's the whole point. Like, it just, it takes a certain degree of courage to just plunge into the unknown like that. And what does it say that someone is more willing to go into that unknown than to stay where, they're, where they are? In this place that some people would consider, like, a utopia. Hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Easter egg. Anyway, <laughs> y'all caught the inside joke. Yeah. yeah. I just recommend that um, if you haven't already uh, to go read the story, even if you think that it's been spoiled already because we told you everything, it's still definitely worth the read. Yeah. Because we didn't include all the details and there are bits, bits and pieces you'll pick up on your own. Yeah. And it's an experience. Um, it made me feel really thoughtful afterward. Kind of unsettled because the thought of just uprooting yourself and walking away from everything you've ever known conflicts against all of our um our instincts Mm. because this idea of of instability uh, of not having a home is um is not appealing for a lot of people cool well i think that's a good place to to wrap things up so go check it out the ones who walked from Omelas. And Google um, Nicole Hannah-Jones while you're at it. You know. You know <laughs> yeah, we fleshed out enough details. Um, definitely go read the story and draw your own conclusions for yourself. I think that's really powerful what you just said. Some people are going to let that like go by, but I want to take a second. Draw the conclusions for yourself. Not the 
bring us back into conversation, I would just say, I think we read an article, we listen to what someone says, we have a conversation with someone, they tell us what they think about something, and then we assume that it's true. Do you feel the way you feel about a particular issue because of the one article you wrote or because of the one conversation that you had with someone? Or are you, as you said, forming the opinion for yourself? Well, that's it for this episode. Um, We promise we will not uh, make you wait (laughs) um, (laughs) as long as we did this time. Uh, And we're going to work to have those guests. uh, We're going to work to have those guests back on. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're about to get out of here. Uh, this has been Luke, Alondra, and Laura saying, keep them squares out your circle. Mm-hmm.